Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. My name's Julian Carl, CEO of Synergen Group, and today is a very special episode. So one of the things that we wanted to do when we first planned this podcast was to have a mix of interviews with senior leaders and also share some content with you. The third part of what we wanted to do was to actually take the time to interview some authors, people that have written books which we think are worth sharing with people, and today is the first one. So in today's episode, I speak with Michael Bunting, who is the author of The Mindful Leader. Now, I think this is a very special episode. It is a long one. It's probably the longest one that we've recorded so far, but I really do think it is worth staying tuned for the whole episode. Michael shares with you some of the insights around mindfulness and how we can be better. And I think quite often he draws a parallel to the personal side of things in terms of how we parent and how we have relationships with those around us. So I personally found it a captivating interview. I think uh, you will too. So happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast, Michael. Very pleased to have you as part of it. Uh, so the listeners have a little bit of context. Can you share a little bit about who is Michael Bunting? So Michael Bunting is um, a South African uh, who, who grew up in South Africa, left uh, there, went to live in Ireland, and then arrived in Australia about 17 years ago now and had a really interesting journey with just sharing with one of my other clients, um, sort of seeing that some South Africans didn't cover themselves in glory with the Australian culture. Yeah. <laughs> and faced a little bit of like, oh my God, not another arrogant South African. And that was a great learning curve for me, actually, to really uh, develop compassion and connection with, with the Aussie. You know, not this, the idea of moving toward the culture, not trying to impose anything on the culture. And I've come to love, 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 love Australian culture. And, and it's especially the ethic of egalitarianism. I think it's really an amazing part of our culture in this country. Uh, Background-wise, I've been practicing mindfulness for 25 years. I've been teaching leadership, mostly to executive leadership, uh, for the last 17 years. I run a, a business called, uh, well, it's now been changed to The Mindful Leader. I've written a few books. So I've written three books, uh, one of them with the world's leading uh, researchers on leadership, Jim Kuzis and Barry Posner. They've, uh, they've, they have a leadership model that's um, they're literally the most researched leadership model on earth and academically peer reviewed. And then a book on mindfulness itself. And then, and then, and then the last book, the one that we're going to talk about today is the mindful leader, uh, which, which has been um, a runaway bestseller, much to my delight and surprise um, in Australia. It's, I think it's nearly triple uh, sold nearly triple the copies of the uh, Australian benchmark for a bestseller. So that's a broad, I review the clients I work with, can be anything from, you know, Hilton Hotels, for example, so hotel groups, right through to the, uh, right through to farmers, banks, you name it. It's a huge range, media clients, and so on and so on, and also a few engineering companies. So we, you know, people on the tools, we we will 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 get close to those groups. Biggest 
sort of industrialish climb we've got at the moment is the Northwest Rapid Transit. So we're uh, helping them with their leadership and cultural development journey. That's that's the building of the railway between um, Chatswood and Macquarie Park right through to the Hills District. So that's a broad overview of me. Great. And so why did you decide to write this book, The Mindful Leader? Okay, so uh, mm, try and give you a short answer. The Leadership Challenge, which is the original work, my first book with Kuzis and Posner, details five leadership practices. These are, as I said earlier, the most researched leadership practices in the world. But what I found in, and I've worked with that model for a long time now, and Jim, I've, I've worked with Jim and Barry, the, the authors of that for a long time. But I also have a deep passion for mindfulness. And what I was seeing starting to happen is people were calling mindful leadership this term mindful leadership, they were calling it mindfulness for leaders was mindful leadership as in you teach leaders to do a little bit of meditation and then that's mindful leadership. And I thought that was dead wrong. That's not what it is. And so I wrote the mindful leader with the intention to integrate a holistic set of mindfulness practices that could create congruence and well-being within and they are based on disciplined, researched leadership practices. So it's a kind of model for leadership that honors the classic, well-researched leadership practices, but also brings in an element of depth, so real deeper work to it, and an ethos or a spirit of well-being. So the mindful leader, when people ask me why, why do you do what you do and what the mindful leader is about, uh, uh, there's a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, a Zen teacher who was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, he said, when we are well, our wellness spills onto others. And when we are unwell, our unwellness spills onto others. Please be well. And he's talking about psychologically well. And I think for leaders, all of us, if you're a leader listening to this, you'll know that when you are having a bad day, you're not actually okay in yourself. You know, you might be overly fearful or aggressive, or you might be too on autopilot, lost in your own mind. The bad days we have or the day and, and, and the bad leadership days we have are the days that we're not well inside ourselves. And so to be well within ourselves is, a, is a, a key part of work for leadership, but not just happy well. I mean, good ethics and values, being, being empowering people, appreciating people, having clarity of purpose. These all lend themselves to wellness. And importantly as well, wellness can be extended to the idea of a well organization. So what does a well organization look like? So it looks like it's profitable. It looks like it looks after its people. It looks after the environment. It's a broader sense of wellness is what the spirit of a mindful leader is about. Great. Do you think there's a real shift happening in, in, in business at the moment? I'm, I'm noticing that mindfulness, wellness, you know, mental health, all of those type of things, there's becoming, becoming more and more, uh, literature put out there. There's more people talking about it. There's more people um, investigating it. Have you sort of noticed that shift recently? <laughs> yeah, it's been. I mean, there's yes, it's enormous. I mean, uh, it's just yeah, it's quite remarkable. In fact, my own experience. I, I've I've been teaching. I've been practicing mindfulness for 25 years, and in great depth and and breadth and integrated various psychologies. But I've been teaching it for 17 years. So I've really seen that trend and change. When I was teaching mindfulness to corporations and governments 17 years ago, it was almost like no one had heard of it. No one. 
nowadays it's so well researched. There's so much neuroscience, um, health science, brain science, you know, physical well-being science behind mindfulness that it's it's just becoming a dominant subject. It's the fastest growing area of, of research in psychology now. And I think it's also juxtaposed against um, the rise of mental unwellness in our culture, in our society. So with the advent of technology, multitasking, um, and the pace of change that's happening in our world, I mean, no one's immune to it anymore, just the sheer pace of change. The average person is really struggling. I mean, the attention span, the average person's attention span, according to Microsoft research, is now lower than a goldfish. And that's gone, that's happened in only the last 13 years. And when our attention span gets lower, our mental health gets lower as well. And so I think the the rise of mindfulness is a non-pill-based solution to wellness and and, inc- and increasing and improving attention span. So that's the first element of it. The second element of it is that mindfulness has, because there's so much science and research, it's it, it, it's more accepted. But the interesting aspect of it also, Julian, is that if you ask a leader, is self-awareness important for a leader? They will tell you yes. But um, it's been my experience that literally no one I've asked this question can answer is, okay, so if you were to be self-aware right now as a practical endeavor, what would you do? And then people go blank. I mean, I've had leadership experts after leadership experts go blank when I ask them that question. So I said, well, let's just think about that. You've said self-awareness is important as a leadership attribute, but you don't know how to actually do it. So it's a kind of theory in a book somewhere. And so what we found is that the, a, a solid understanding of mindfulness actually gives us the practical do. I'm sure many of your listeners can't stand all the, you know, all the theoretical BS around a lot of things. So, okay, just tell me how to bloody will do, mind, do self-awareness. How do I practice it now? How do I cultivate, become more self-aware, and therefore have better relationships, uh, better emotional intelligence, better inner well-being, and so on? And mindfulness, uh, when understood correctly, answers that question, you know, really emphatically, really clearly. This is how you do self-awareness as a leader. So, in in a simple way, how do you how do you define mindfulness? What's sort of the the, the headline grab, I suppose, so people can sort of say, oh, okay, I've got a, the the initial understanding of it. How would you define it? At the most basic level, it's about being in the present moment. So the mind tends to be obsessed with the future. I mean, the average person is endlessly obsessed with the future. So, you, as a listener, you might have that experience where you've driven to work and you can barely remember the journey. Um, sometimes I'll often ask people, are you wearing shoes or not? And, and I say, don't look. And, and they're like, they can't even recall putting their shoes on in the morning. So we kind of lost in a haze of endless distraction. We're not quite here. And the mind is drifting off into the past and future all the time. And then also, there's also a kind of argument with what's happening now. So there's three ways of not being mindful, which is being lost in future thinking, planning, scheming, dreaming, lost in the past, regretting, sadness, you know, rehashing things, and then a kind of complaining about what's going on now, not accepting what's happening now. And so mindfulness as a practice is a, is a cultivation of being present, being in your life. And, and then there's got two pieces to it. There's the, there's the being present, but then there's also, by definition, what's the difference between mindfulness and just being present is mindfulness is sustained presence. 
So it's not presence for a brief moment. It's becoming more, it's becoming present for two, three, five, 10, 20, 30 seconds, a minute. And as we extend the time we spend in the present, the mind settles down, the brain changes for the good, our health recovers, our depression decreases, our anxiety decreases, our self-awareness grows. So at the most basic level, mindfulness is, is the set of practices for extending time in the present. And then additionally, it's also got a, an element of heartfulness. You, if you ever heard that term, Julian, when you say, oh, my heart was just not in it. Yeah. You know, I was there, but my heart was just not in it. So mindfulness also trains your heart to be in it. In and when what? In your life. To be deeply engaged. And, that, and so it has these qualities of kindness and compassion and emotional strength to it as well. And it's not kindness like a kind of wimpy kind of kindness. It's sometimes it can be really fierce compassion. So sometimes it's the heartfelt tough conversation with a direct report if you're a leader versus avoiding the tough conversation from fear and a closed heart. So it's got these deep, rich qualities to it. So yeah, in simple terms, being present, but being present in mind and heart, that kind of present. And I imagine that you would see some really, really powerful changes in people because I always like models, tools, ideas where it impacts both their professional and their personal life. I would imagine with this that people would be maybe coming to you from a business context, but then the changes in their personal life would be quite profound as well. Uh, dramatic, absolutely dramatic. The, the, the research tells us that you'll learn that your brain can literally change on an MRI scan within eight weeks of mindfulness practice. So literally, you're going to see the evidence of a brain change that fast, which is quite remarkable. The part of the brain that changes is mostly is that the amygdala shrinks, which is that fight-flight reaction. So you have a lot less reactivity in yourself. And what grows is the prefrontal cortex in the brain, which is kind of like the CEO of your brain. And that gives you more connection perspective. And what happens is people start healing relationships that were broken. When I was writing the Mindful Leader book, there was a, there's a fellow in the book from Silicon Valley in the US. And I interviewed him in a restaurant in Manly in Sydney. And I asked him a simple question. I said, how long have you been practicing mindfulness? And he said, oh, about three years. I said, okay. And so what's been the greatest benefit uh, for you practicing mindfulness? And he became really quiet. And then he said to me, he said, I have two children, two boys. One of them is 23 now and the other is 24 years old. And now that I've practiced mindfulness and then he gets quiet and then he starts getting a bit tearful. And then he says to me, now that I've practiced, gathers himself again. Now that I've practiced mindfulness, I realize that I was not there for my children when they were young. I was in the house. I went to the soccer games. I was around the place, but I wasn't really there. I wasn't, I was always distracted thinking about work. And then, and then very soon after that, the grieving started. He was, he cried so loud, the whole restaurant stopped and looked around and he had, he was experiencing this profound sense of grief of the loss that comes with living a distracted life, a mind full of busyness all the time. You literally lose the precious experience right in front of your eyes. You'll miss your, your, your children's childhood because you're not really there. And that's created a phenomenon called approximate abandonment. Most kids nowadays growing up in homes 
are not getting the nourishing connection, heartfelt attention they need from their parents. And so they're going through a kind of abandonment trauma experience, often getting given, you know, iPads and phones and TVs to kind of placate or to kind of quell their, their pain. Then the kids act up, of course, because they're not getting enough connection from the parents. And then the parents get aggressive or angry and punish them. And then you're in a cycle of kind of psychological violence in the average home. And that's normal in the average home now. And it's not surprising that children born after 1995 have far higher incidence of mental health issues than children born before 1995, both because of the technology issues, but also because parents are just not present with their kids. The, the parents' attention span is, is so damaged. And so mindfulness is a, you know, this particular leader reflecting, wow, I'm really not there. And so the big change that people experience is, they, is the reconnection with, with what matters. Their life doesn't happen anywhere else. It happens here now. This is your life now if you're listening to this. And what's your attitude to your life right now? And what's your pervasive attitude to your life right now? Um, this is a big deal. I mean, this is it. You, only, you know, some people say you only get one shot at it. Are you going to show up for it or are you going to be endlessly distracted dreaming of a better life? Or will you live this life fully uh, with an engaged heart? In a sense, that's the sort of poetry of mindfulness as a practice. It's very significant. And it's not an accident that people who practice mindfulness are, are really well, psychologically well. It creates connection and connection is fundamental to wellness. And it creates connection with ourselves and it creates clarity. So that's what it does. Even the simple ordinary practice, but what it does long-term is extremely significant. That would be very rewarding, I'd imagine, when you have those sorts of conversations and uh, are able to, to influence people in, in such a positive way. Yeah, it is. But the interesting aspect of being a mindfulness trainer or teacher or practitioner is um, it kind of teaches you to constantly let go. So it's kind of funny when you're asking that question because one of the pieces I've trained myself on is to never claim another person's, you know, to never kind of glorify my own, oh, well, look how good I am, look what I did. That's actually just another aspect of mindlessness, funnily enough. <laughs> it's an odd, it is deeply rewarding to, as, as for you too, no doubt, to be a part of contributing to people's lives in a positive way. I mean, it's a really rich and there's no doubt you would have, and people like me would have, we've chosen this profession because we can make a meaningful difference to people's lives. The other fascinating thing that we found that's worth noting if you're a leader listening to this is the Mindful Leader of my book has seven leadership disciplines, and we researched this on a 360 assessment. So if you don't know what a 360 is, it's when you assess a leader, the direct reports, their peers and their boss, assess them anonymously on a set of questions. What we did is we, we, we ran 500 leaders through this assessment with 4,000 evaluators. And then we wanted to understand the connection, the researched connection point between engagement and mental health. And so here's an interesting statistic. Your mental health, a third of your mental health is dependent on your boss's behavior. Wow. So a third of your, I'm going to repeat that. A third of your mental health is dependent on your boss's behavior. So if you are a boss and you're listening to this, you are a leader, you've got to know that a third of your people's mental health is dependent on whether you show up to work and lead well or whether, you know, constructively, honestly, ethically, um, clearly empowering, et cetera, et cetera. 
the good news is that if you do that well, you're making an amazing difference. So it's not just our work, Julian. If you're a leader listening to this, you are making a positive or negative difference in people's lives. And I think the showstopper note, if you're listening, is that if you have direct reports, you have children, and you're showing up and you're leading well, that wellness, that, that support, that, um, that goodness that you're spreading onto your direct reports then will leak into their home lives and their children. However, if you're not leading well, you're actually poisoning children in a way because those people go home distressed, checked out, struggling because of your behavior as a boss. And then that impacts their children and their spouse. And so it's a quite significant responsibility as a leader on mental health. It was one of the bugbears I had because often mindfulness is taught to organizations as a, oh, let's fix everybody and help them mentally. And what, what we wanted to research is go, yeah, but the boss's behavior is probably even more important. It's actually a bit of, you know, you need to give people skills, but yeah, it's quite significant. We also found that 40% of a person's engagement at work is dependent on their boss's behavior, even higher than mental health. In other words, if a person shows up at work and they feel engaged, they actually want to be there. 40% of that is dependent on their boss's behavior. And a statistic I, wrote, I read last night, 35, a massive survey done by Harvard, 35% of people surveyed were prepared to take a salary cut to have their boss fired. Wow. That's, a, that's a third of the workforce would sacrifice money. That's how much they hate their boss. They would sacrifice money to have their boss fired. Uh, so if you're listening to this again as a leader, it's just a significant thing to know that your leadership really matters. The way you show up matters. The way you pay attention matters. And it's a big responsibility. Oh dear, yeah, there's some, there's some huge numbers. And I think they, they lead really well into this uh, excerpt that I'd, I'd like to, to read from your book, which I think is, you know, really sets the tone for the, for the, the leader. This is uh, from chapter one. The behavior of leaders has an enormous impact on those they lead, and the more senior they are, the greater the impact. Leadership is both a privilege and a burden. It is incumbent on leaders to be well and to lead from a center of wellness and non-reactivity. Leaders set the tone for the whole team or organization. When they are calm, confident, open and relaxed, the team is more likely to feel the same. Likewise, when they are stressed, fearful and closed, it breeds the same emotions amongst team members. Yeah, this is the mirror neurons aspect of it as well. So we are biologically programmed to cue off the most powerful person in the room. You know, and if the most powerful person in the room is stressed and upset, and so, so are we infected by it. And if they're calm, clear, and open-hearted, so are we infected by it. And if you're a leader of a team and you're in the room, you are the most powerful person in the room. So, yeah, it's very significant that you look after your own condition. It's funny, though, because all this stuff's quite subtle. It's not like it's not biblical and dramatic. You know what I mean? You show up at work stressed and you're a bit closed and a bit grumpy. You know, you're not going to see people suddenly wither and die in front of you or something dramatic like that. It's more like this kind of death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. That's what happens. Um, it's gentle, slowly, surely degrading. The other thing is the research, another piece of research from Harvard is that the most destabilizing thing, let me try and put it up. I'll give it to you as a parental example. It turns out that if a child gets a, you know, gets a spanking every now and then at home, that's not a good idea ever. 
because it's a form of violence. But if the child can connect the spanking to something that they know they shouldn't have done, it doesn't leave that much of a psychological scar on them, as long as the spanking is not actually violent, you know. It's, an, it's not really hurting the child. If it's hurting the child, it's another thing. The interesting thing, though, is if the child doesn't know why they're being spanked, that leaves severe trauma in the child. And the reason why is because the child's whole world becomes unsafe because they don't know when the next piece of verbal, it could even be verbal or physical violence is coming from. So they're perpetually feeling unsafe in their own home. And that leads to, you know, very deep mental and emotional scarring. And then that'll turn into adulthood problems, even health problems. It's the same with leadership. So if you are a leader and your team don't know if you're going to show up in a good mood or a bad mood, and when you're in a bad mood, it's not particularly safe to be around you and there's no predictability to it, then their world becomes destabilized and they are constantly feeling psychologically unsafe in your company. And so it really is beholden on leaders to be consistent. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be sad. I mean, in fact, it's important to, if you are a leader and you're feeling sad or depressed or anxious, it's okay to tell people that. What's not okay is to actually take it out or vent on them and avoid things we ordinarily would avoid. It, it, this is important to note as a leader. I think it's really important to know that you're not supposed to be perfect. You're supposed to be a human being, especially in Australia, where we want to relate to our bosses and our leaders as human beings, not as some hierarchical position. But just know that you're, it's, not okay, it's just not okay to behave in ways that are not respectful of your team. And when you do, you really tra you actually traumatize them, literally. But you won't know it because they'll never tell you because it's not safe to tell you. That's the other irony. 50% of bosses are not trusted by their direct reports. That's a statistic from Charles Watson, 32,000 person survey. 50% of bosses are not trusted by their direct reports. So if you're listening to this now, there's, you know, there's 10 people listening to this now, statistically half of you are not trusted by your direct reports. Now, what are the odds of you actually knowing whether you're not trusted by your direct reports or not? And that's the, that's the sad part of it is if you are not an open-minded, open-hearted leader, you'll never know because people won't tell you because it's not safe to tell you. And so you've lost the trust of your people. You're creating difficulty for them and no one's telling you. So it does require a degree of emotional stability and openness to earn people's trust. Hmm. And these, these are some, some pretty damning statistics have you in your experience seen is there any particular country or any particular culture that is leading the way in 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 mindfulness i think to be honest i think australia is doing a fantastic job globally i know i know that we've got a huge i mean it's really normal now to hear children at school being taught mindfulness it's very normal um i was in switzerland recently with a client and and he introduced me to his 14-year-old daughter. And uh, he said, oh, what does Michael do? Oh, one of the things he does, teaches Michael. She ran out, got to the bedroom, brought her certificate out. She just graduated. She's a 14-year-old. She just graduated her mindfulness training program at school. Wow. Be well or something like that. And um, it's so pervasive now because it's, um, it's a missing piece of our education. So... The UK in the UK now, 68% of general practitioner doctors would recommend mindfulness as a key way to deal with anxiety and depression. 
another reason why mindfulness again is growing so fast is because depression is now uh, overtaken heart disease is the number one reason for lost years of life. The, the World Health Organization is predicting by 2030 that it will be triple as bad as heart disease. It's the fastest growing area of illness. I mean, we're very aware of it in our culture. Suicide rates and so on and so on. It's really not going well. So mindfulness is a very important antidote. And I think in first world countries, it's growing. No one has statistics on who's doing it best per se. I think Australia is doing a great job. Funnily enough, it's been my experience that Australian leadership development is much deeper than any other country I've been to and more advanced. My theory on that, it's just a theory, is that it's harder to lead in Australia than anywhere else in the world because of the tall poppy syndrome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're a good leader in Australia, you'll be a good leader anywhere in the world because you cannot rely on your position and hierarchy to be respected. In fact, as I say jokingly to my clients in Australia, and if you're in Japan or Korea or you know several European countries, Switzerland, Germany, as a leader, you automatically are, def the default is respect. Like, oh yeah, you're a leader, you're the boss. In Australia, if you're the leader or a boss, by default, you're a dickhead. And now you have to prove otherwise. It's totally different. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking of some of the training programs I've run and that uh, almost that exact words come up. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's like you get put, you get put in a position of leadership. Okay, you're a dickhead. All right, now prove me wrong. Yeah. But boy, I'm, gonna, I'm still going to hold on to the idea that you're a dickhead just simply because you're a boss. Yeah. Or you only got there because you knew someone or those sort of things. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and again, it's one of the reasons why being open-hearted and open-minded and, and human as a leader in Australia is so important. You know, sometimes people get a new position as a leader and they decided, okay, I've got to boss people around now. You've got to be kidding me. That's the last thing you want to do. At the same time, you've got to create real clarity around um, boundaries. This is the other thing we see a struggle, interesting enough, in Australian leadership. I know I'm going off of the topic here, but one of the things we found, one of the phenomenons I've seen, especially in some of our bigger Aussie clients, um, I call it the micromanaging mate. That's the nickname I give for leaders, a lot of Aussie leaders. They've been promoted to a leadership position amongst their peers or their mates. Yes. So now, they wanna, now they've got to be the boss, but they don't really want to be the boss because they still want to be everyone's mate but they've now responsible for, for things getting delivered. So instead of holding people to account with clarity and skill, they basically kind of micromanage people without necessary clarity of, of what's expected, trying to be their mate at the same time. And it lends to a whole bunch of anxiety and actually it doesn't really work that well. And the leaders slowly but surely sort of kill their own health and wellness because it's a very paradoxical position. And my advice to Aussie leaders is be the leader. People don't want to mate. Be, you know, be kind, be open, be, but they want a good leader. They don't want a good mate. Uh, if you're in a leadership position, what does that mean? You know, have some clarity on what you expect of people. Do express appreciation um, for them when they do a great job. Not like a mate would, but, but like a leader would. That's a really important psychological shift that, you know, you, if you're listening to this and you, you're in that position, you've got to ask yourself, am I a leader? Am I worthy of being a leader? What does that mean for me to be a leader? What's the difference between being a leader when I show up at work versus being a mate? What does that mean in behavior? And for me, the biggest answer I've seen over time is it means me setting standards and behaviors more clearly for my team and not shying away from the difficult conversations. 
and the clarity and then empowering people, even mentoring people. Cause that's another challenge. Like who am I to mentor anyone? This is my mate. If you're the leader, it's part of your role. Part of your role is to mentor and, and, and bring people up. There was a reason why you were picked, right? And we're assuming it's a good reason. It's quite interesting because a lot I've come across that a lot with people being tapped on the shoulder because they're very good at what they do or they're a technical expert and then they suddenly in charge of their people they used to be friends with or used to you know go hiking with or go fishing with or whatever and it's it's often a very difficult line for them to walk. Yeah, I'll tell you something funny, Julian. I have the privilege of coaching a lot of CEOs. The one thing I've found about coaching. CEOs is that they invariably at one point or another, they confess to me that they don't know what they're doing half the time. <laughs> right. And it's an imposter syndrome. Like if someone's going to find out sooner or later, Michael, that I don't really know what I'm doing. So if you are a frontline leader listening to this, please be assured everybody feels the same way, even up to the CEO. It's like, Shh, I don't really know what I'm doing fully. It's kind of a bit of guesswork, right? It's a little bit like parenting. Parenting is no different, right? For most of us who are parents, like it's, you're kind of guessing every day. You're not really sure what the hell you're doing half the time. And yeah. so the expectation on yourself to know is ridiculous, right? It's a, it's a learn-as-you-go approach. Always has been, always will be. Yeah. So I'd like to dig a, a little bit deeper into what, what you've called in your book the, the four foundations of mindfulness to give people a bit of, a bit of structure about how they could start to, to, to think and look at this. Are you able to walk the listeners through the four foundations? Yeah. So the four foundations of mindfulness, um, just so the listeners, something worth noting is that this term mindfulness originally came from the word, a Pali word, two and a half thousand years ago, it came from a word called sati, S-A-T-I, which means remembering. And what does it mean? It means remembering to be here now. So if you're driving your car unmindfully, for example, you're not remembering where you are. You've literally forgotten where you are for a moment and you're often, you know, the, at the beach or something. You're not there. So mindfulness means remembering where you are as in being here now. And the original, original mindfulness teacher, historically, was a guy called Buddha. The word Buddha means awake. So his nickname, I guess, was, oh, that's the guy who's awake versus being asleep at the wheel of the car, as in daydreaming, drifting, thinking, planning. So historically, mindfulness came from the guy, the Buddha. And if you're a religious or atheist listening to this, just another interesting thing that most people don't know is that there's zero religion in, in um in all things Buddhist practice. Uh, it's literally a, a, literally a psychology. In fact, the Buddha, the guy Siddhartha was his name, was asked many times about spirituality and God and all that kind of stuff. And he relentlessly refused. He said, that's not my gig. You know, what my gig is is to help you be well, mentally, emotionally well. That's what I do. And so that's the origins of mindfulness. Um, it's a set of you know, techniques and practices and, and that, that make you well. And if you're, a, as, as one of my friends said, if you are an atheist, it'll make you a better atheist. If you're a Christian, it'll make you a better Christian. It's not con in conflict whatsoever with any belief system. In fact, it doesn't have any belief system attached to it. It's literally a set of practices. It's like you don't need to have a belief system to swim. Swimming is a set of skill sets. So is mindfulness. And, um, and, and, and he also, in the original training of mindfulness, he referred to a bunch of, he referred to four foundations of mindfulness. So what are the four foundations of mindfulness? They're the four areas you can be mindful of. So the first foundation of mindfulness is the body. 
So when we are mindful or present or connected with our body, we are by definition present. Why is it important to be connected with your body? A couple of reasons. Um, well, there's many reasons, but I'll give you a couple of reasons. When you know what's going on in your body, your body is always telling you what's good for you and what's bad for you. When you're eating crap, your body is telling you. When you're not living your values, your body is telling you. You're speaking disrespectfully to people, your body is telling you. When it's time to go to sleep at night and you're not going to sleep, your body is telling you. When you've had enough to drink, your body is telling you. Most of us are so utterly disconnected from our bodies. We literally don't know what's going on in our bodies because we're so numb. We're so tuned out and numb that we just don't listen anymore. We don't know how to listen anymore. And this is one of the primary causes of depression and anxiety. We've literally lost connection with what's important. We've stopped listening. So the first foundation of mindfulness is the skill set and the set of practices and attitudes needed to listen more deeply to what's happening in our physical experience. The other aspect of it is to be connected with the senses because living more connected with the senses, as in you know, touch, smell, see, uh, leads to a sensational life, literally sensational life, makes you more sensitive as in you know, less, more emotionally intelligent versus being insensitive or doing senseless things. So this is the whole realm of the first foundation. We spend a lot of time with, this, uh, with leaders on this because what we find is that most leaders we work with violate values. You know, they say, oh, here's the organizational values. And, and if you're listening to this now and you think about your senior leaders, you'll probably go, yeah, that's our senior leaders. I don't live the values. They're stated on a wall somewhere. You know, how's it possible for those senior leaders to believe that they're living their values but not actually living them? Really, really easy. They are disconnected from their bodies because if they were connected, their bodies would be telling them, hey, speaking dishonestly is not cool. It's creating suffering in you and others. If you know if the body actually had a, it doesn't speak like that, obviously. It's just the messages it gives us. So that's the first foundation of mindfulness. The second foundation of mindfulness is understanding our attitudes to life and knowing how to manage them. So we tend to have attitudes of resistance, um, clinging, grabbing, and, and zoning out. So every moment of our lives, the, we have an experience that's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So as you're listening to this right now, you can connect, I can ask you to look. Am I feeling, oh, this is nice to listen to. Oh my God, I'm getting bored of this. I wish you'd shut up. Or I don't know, it's okay to listen to it. It's nothing particularly interesting. That's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience. When we're in an unpleasant experience, we naturally react with hate or fear. When we're, in an un, when we're in a pleasant experience, we naturally react with greed or clinging. We want more of it. Or when we're losing the good experience, we hold on. And when we're in a neutral experience, it's not good or bad. We just kind of tend to zone out into autopilot. Understanding that dynamic in yourself is the second foundation of mindfulness. It's a little bit complex, but that's the key thing. It's understanding how you're driven constantly by reactivity and how to get out of that reactivity. So, for example, if your child, if you're a parent and your child is saying to you, you really, I wish you'd given me more attention when I was five years old and that's a 20-year-old child, that's a painful experience for a parent. Most parents will just deflect and blame. They'll just go, ah, no, that's not true because they don't have the strength to stay present in the difficulty, which leads to trust. Being able to be strong and present when things are tough, that's the mark of a strong mind. Training your mind to do that is part of mindfulness training. 
most people's minds are extremely weak and brittle. They can't cope with emotional difficulty. They just go and have a drink, just blame, just get aggressive. They're very, what's called brittle in mindfulness. They don't have an emotional strength. Uh, mindfulness training, the second foundation is teaching you emotional strength. Can you sit in the pain and not react? Can you stay open when what you're being told by your boss, your loved one is painful but true and you need to hear it? And then the third aspect, the third foundation of mindfulness is being aware of what's going on in you emotionally and mentally. So you could call it mindfulness of the mind. That's the best way of saying it. Most of what we think is complete bullshit. I'd say 99% of what the average person thinks is complete and utter bullshit. It's just garbage running around in the head. And yet most of it's believed. Like it's totally lacking. Oh, my thoughts are so believable and important. Becoming aware of the craziness of the thinking is really important because you become free of your own mind and you become a little bit more objective about what's going on in you. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is becoming aware of the patterns in your life. All of us have got patterns. Some of us, some of them healthy and some of them unhealthy. Driving into work the other day and I had um, one of the pop stations on Kiss FM or something like that and uh, they had Jessica Melvoy's new song on, which is the one she's going to be singing at Eurovision or whatever I think is Eurovision. And the lyrics of the song went something like this. They said, why do we argue so much? She's obviously talking about her boyfriend why do we argue so much we're bickering all the time but we actually love each other we're our own worst enemies something like that and it's like if you're trained in mindfulness it's freaking obvious why the why they bicker so much is because there's moments of probably more intimacy and heart openness happening that they're not comfortable with because most people yearn for intimacy but they can't they don't have the emotional strength to actually deal with intimacy and so when it gets a little bit intimate instead of sort of moving towards the vulnerability and the intimacy, they'll just pick up an argument with their, sp their spouse or partner. They'll just bicker and argue. And that makes them feel a little bit disconnected and safe again. And then they don't understand, why do I keep bickering? That's, that's a pattern. Like it's a pattern of bickering. And you become aware of the pattern inside yourself that are actually destroying your well-being and the well-being of those around you. That's a very important set of practices, which is the fourth foundation of mindfulness so those are the one two three four that are sort of it's all the same practice mindfulness is mindfulness but it's bringing your mindfulness to a specific area of your of your experience and really the four foundations cover everything there is nothing else other than those in terms of the human experience you can only the only experience you've got available to you is is your five senses and your mind that's it hmm. and becoming aware and being able to navigate all of that skillfully is the, is the practice and the, and the skill set of the four foundations of mindfulness. And Julian, we have, I don't know if I mentioned this, but we, we launched an app, an, an, an Android um, iPhone, iOS app uh, in October last year. And it's been going for a while. We've got a lot of big clients on it now. And it's available. You can download it right now off the App Store or the Google Play Store. And that app takes you through all the skills that you need from the very basic beginner right through to the, the most advanced mindfulness skills. It's like a full training where you can get mastery over your own mind and emotions and so that you can live a more full, happy, stress-free life. And that's the other interesting thing is there's no stress when you're mindful. Mindfulness absolutely eliminates stress, totally eliminates stress. It's really powerful. 
I imagine there'd be a lot of leaders who would simply gravitate to it from from that perspective. Yeah, and the two the two broad categories of of why to practice mindfulness are because it hugely reduces stress and therefore massively increases uh, mental well being. And the other reason why is it it develops emotional strength and resilience and and deep self understanding and deep self knowledge. I don't believe. This is a cheeky thing to say. I just don't believe you, your, your self-knowledge is even at 5% of where it could be without a mindfulness practice. Because mindfulness is, 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 the, is the practice of awareness itself. It's the sustained, it's sustaining awareness. It's not getting lost in numbness or drift off. Now, how could you know yourself well without sustained awareness of yourself? You can't. It's just, it's vague guesswork. So mindfulness gives you that sustained clarity, which, which really teaches you about, you know, you become your own teacher, you learn. And there's one rule. There's only one rule. So when I wrote the mindful leader, um, I had an editor. Most people don't probably don't know this. When you write a book, it's a team effort as much as it is an individual effort. And I had this amazing editor that I worked with just made the book so much better. We ended up editing the book 17 times. And, um, he was from a um, he was from a religious background, and he kept on asking me, "What are the rules around mindfulness?" Because that's kind of like the religious orientation. What are the rules? What are the rules? How should you be? And his name's Stephen, and I said, I kept on, I had to I had to tell him a thousand times that there is only one rule. And it's not even a rule; it's just more like a guideline. There is only one rule for, in mindfulness. So, okay, what's the one rule? The one rule is just simply asking yourself this question: If I continue with this behavior or this set of this set of thought thinking patterns. Uh, will this reduce my suffering or increase my suffering in the long term? That's it. And the, and uh, sorry, by default, other suffering. So just to repeat that, any moment in your life, you ask yourself this question: If I continue with what I'm doing now, will it increase my suffering and that of others, or will it decrease my suffering and that of others? And mindfulness is only about one thing, and that's the reducing of suffering, the ending of suffering within me and for those around me. That's the kind of spirit of it all. And then the set of practices, sustained awareness, heart open connection, all of those things do reduce suffering. Now, a mindful life is sometimes referred to as a regret-free life because you don't do stupid things. You don't do regretful things because you're aware. And yet, paradoxically, life is very spontaneous and uh, open and joyful. I gave a talk to 110 lawyers recently on mindfulness. I remember that was a nerve-wracking moment, Julian. I was about to stand in front of 110 trained arguers. And someone asked me, uh, someone asked me in the room, what's been the big benefit of, of, um, for you personally, Michael, of, of practicing mindfulness for 25 years? And uh, I said, Probably the biggest benefit of all. There's so many. It's I could I could I could just go on and on and on and on. Deeply great relationships with my kids, with my wife, with my clients. Just my whole life's full of meaningful connections. And and the Harvard research tells us that this is what uh, is the number one factor for longevity. You want to live a long, healthy life. Connection matters. And um, but I said probably the most important of all is that every day my life feels like it's full of experiences of wonder like that wonder open, full open. I can still look at a sunset now and it's like I've never seen a sunset. It's like there's such an openness. I can sometimes feel a breeze on my face and it feels like, wow, you know, 
just the simple wonder of being alive. That's what a mindfulness practice gives you, connected sensitivity. And there was a woman in the room who started crying. And then she said in front of her 110 peers, she said, I lost the wonder a long time ago. That's so sad. And I said, yeah, that's what happens when you live in a relentlessly busy mind, thinking all the time, planning, scheming, regretting. And then you dance from that busy mind to numbing activities. You go and sit in front of TV all night or you drink yourself into a kind of stupor. That's numb. So you spend your life in a dance between stressed out in the mind and numb. And then you literally lose the wonder. You lose the point of the whole thing. And that's the gift of, of mindfulness. I think just considering our time, it might be just, people might be asking, well, how do you practice mindfulness? And um, there's two ways, broad ways. There's meditation. There's literally sitting down and meditating. And again, if you want to know how to meditate right now, um, just Go to the App Store or the Play Store, download Awakened Mind, awakenedmind.com. Sorry, the app is called Awakened Mind. And there's a bunch of free meditations right now. You can go and do a little course, a little animated video course on what mindfulness is, and it can teach you to meditate immediately. A little five-minute meditations, easy stuff to have a go. So that's one way you can learn. That's one way of practicing mindfulness, which is actual meditating. And that's probably the, the most powerful way to cultivate it because you're just dedicated. It's like going to do some exercise at the gym, you know, it's good for, for, for you. But equally, you can decide to take the stairs at work instead of the elevator, and that's a form of exercise, right? And so there's the other form of mindfulness is the commitment to and practicing of presence in our daily lives. So if you walk to work, you know, it's try and stay present, feeling your footsteps, the breeze on your face, stay present through that walk instead of endlessly drift in the mind. If you exercise, you go for a run or you go for a swim, try and let your mind focus in on being where you are. The mind will drift off. You keep coming back. You keep coming back. I used to do long distance ocean swimming and I'd always, I'd always remind myself just this breath, just the feeling of the water, just this breath, just the feeling of the water and just constantly trying to let the mind settle down into just being there. That's a, that's mindfulness. So connected present experience. And then, as I said, the meditation side of it, when you close your eyes and you sit there and practice, um, is very important because it teaches you to be present without needing a good experience. And that's really important. Most of us will only ever be present when what's happening around us is cool and nice. And that's not that often. And so for the rest of the time, we're in some form of absent-mindedness. And that absent-mindedness is literally taking years of your life. That's medically science proven. It's literally taking years of your life. It's prematurely aging you. Mindfulness practitioners, people who start practicing, they can literally reverse the genetic age. And this is Nobel Prize winning medical research because the stress in the system reduces and then the body recovers. And at the DNA level, literally, um, there's recovery. That's quite powerful to practice but practicing meditation is 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 training your mind to stay present not get into all that other crap in the mind in any kind of circumstance at work in front of boring things you know walking to work washing the dishes brushing your teeth being with your kids it's just this commitment to presence being there that's a big challenge for a lot of people leaders in particular isn't it that idea of just being able to be there it's mad, you know, it's absolutely mad. And multitasking. Mm. Multitasking is complete BS. It's not good for you. 
uh, you lose your intelligence. You become, there's some re- there's research showing that if you're trying to multitask, you actually end up at the same level of intelligence as someone stoned on two joints. <laughs> <laughs> and it's less fun either. It's less fun. <laughs> but multitasking is really bad for you. Um, uh, constantly thinking, really bad for you. Constantly dreaming, really bad for you. Uh, judging people in your mind all the time, really bad for you. Judging yourself all the time, really bad for you. The mind is a monster. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not good for us. Uh, yeah, and when we're present, all of that stuff fades away. I did an experiment that did a research study where they wanted to see, they asked people to um, they get a little alarm on their, on, their, on their phone and want to say, okay, for the last minute, what have you been doing? Have you been fully engaged with what you're doing as in present, mindful? Have you been thinking happy thoughts? Have you been thinking unhappy thoughts? And then, and then they asked them to rate their level of happiness and uh, after answering one of those three questions. And they found that the people who were just engaged with what they were doing were, were much happier than the people who were thinking happy thoughts. And, of course, the unhappiest were the ones thinking unhappy thoughts. And it just goes to prove that happiness doesn't come from thinking happy thoughts. Happiness comes from being present, from being engaged in your life. The problem is if you're listening to this and you go, okay, I'm going to be engaged. Okay, where's the happiness? You can't think, you can't do that because then you're being present. It's a weird practice mindfulness because you've got to discipline yourself to just stay present and just not look for any rewards. Because if you start looking for rewards, you're not mindful. You know, I'm not in the present anymore. It's tricky. There's a lot of subtlety to doing it well. It's quite an art to to master. It's so simple to be present, but it's not so simple. So in your book, you, you, you've written uh, something which intrigues me, Meeting Your Shadow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about that? So Carl Jung, the mother, one of the fathers of modern Western psychology, he was a student of Sigmund Freud for a while and then went out sort of on his own. Uh, he coined that term, the shadow. What the shadow means is that it's this weird kind of, dark sounding term. What it means is simply that each one of us holds secrets from ourselves. So for example, you might say to someone, gee, you're being, you're being a bit cruel or you're being a bit nasty. You're being a bit mean. For most of us, when we get that kind of feedback, we'll deny it. It's like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Gee, you're being critical. No, I'm not being critical. I'm just stating the facts. That's a classic one, right? Um, or another example recently, one of my clients said, I hate prejudiced people. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. So you hate people who hate. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Oh yeah. So for most of many of us, we've got a bunch of secrets from ourselves. We're like, we do some, we do an act from things in ourselves that are not good. Um, hate, hating, um, anger. Sometimes we can be violent in the way we speak to our children, but the moment we actually, we are actually confronted with it, we deny it. And then that's what Carl Jung calls a shadow. In other words, we keep secrets from ourselves. They're in the shadow of our own awareness and shadow work is, and it's really important for leaders and it's important for everyone. Shadow work is getting real. It's getting real with but what one of my clients recently said, ah, oh, so you've got to own your shit. I said, yeah, that's shadow work. It's like you've got to know what your shit is and own it and not blame everyone else for it. What most of us, what for most of us happens is when we're behaving badly and we all do at times and someone, if you're lucky enough, says, hey, you're not behaving well. For most of us, what we'll do is we'll instantly deny it or blame circumstances. I, I, Let's say you've got a 15-year-old son of mine a few years ago said to me, Dad, I'm not appreciating the way you're speaking to me. I was speaking to him. He had done something that had, had, had caused me to feel angry. 
And he said, I'm not appreciating the way you're speaking to me. And I could just feel it on the tip of my tongue. I was going to say to him, his name's Tom. I said, Tom, I'm only speaking to you like this because you did that. That's an example of a shadow. It's like, what, what am I saying there? I'm going, I'll just interpret that mindfully for you. Oh, so I'm going to speak to my own child disrespectfully and violently. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to blame my child for making me speak like this to him. Like what total bullshit is that? I'm speaking disrespectfully to my child because I can't handle my own emotions at that moment because I'm up to shit. It's got nothing to do with my child. And, and so I could say to my child, look, I'm still giving you some punishment and there's still some consequences what you did, but I'm still going to do that respectfully because I'm in charge of the way I speak to people. That's my choice. A shadow is like you, you act out this bullshit on people and then you pretend that it's not your fault and it's their fault. And we all do this, right? We blame other people for our behavior all the time. And that is the shadow. And it leads to a lot of pain and suffering in ourselves and other people's lives. Doing shadow works very confronting. It's basically taking full ownership of your bullshit at one level. For many people, only it, for, it's, it's also hard to own their goodness, especially Aussies. It feels like, you know, so, so tell me what you're really good at, you know? People are like, ah, nothing. I just kind of lucky. I just kind of muddle my way through just to even be able to own the good parts of yourself. Like, no, I actually have some really good qualities and say, so, yeah, yeah. And it's not boastful and it's not arrogant and it's not that bullshit. It's just allowing yourself to appreciate yourself, which is really good for your brain and really good for your emotional health. Like really good. The brain science is extraordinary in this area. It's super important to be able to acknowledge your goodness, your good qualities, the good things you do, like really important but not from a boastful, arrogant place, from a place of genuine appreciation. But for many of us, that stuff's in the shadow too. Like we can't even acknowledge our own, like somehow we're terrified to acknowledge, gee, I'm a kind person or gee, I, you know, I can really be honest with people courageously. Man, I'm, I've got good integrity, whatever it is, right? So the shadow is the way Carl Jung described it is that you can't feel whole. You'll never feel whole and complete as a human being until you own the shadow because you're paying hide and seek from yourself. You're running away from parts of yourself, pushing and denying. You're in conflict. You're in denial with yourself whilst you're not owning the shadow. And Carl Jung's work was all about trying to help people become psychologically happy. And so it's an essential part of the work and it's a big deal for leaders. 98% of leaders I meet, uh, maybe 95%, they don't own their shit. The classic one for us is the senior leaders say, our culture's, our culture's not good. We need to fix it. Okay, good, good. So what's wrong with the culture? Oh, it's the middle managers and the frontline leaders. They're crap. They need to be fixed. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that's great that you're perfect. Oh, thank God for that. You know, it's nothing to do with you. Right? The culture has got nothing to do with you, senior leaders. Oh, well, when you put it that way, maybe it's like, what do you mean? You guys are the culture, for God's sakes. You set the tone. And if the culture's up to shit, your leadership's up to shit. That's why. You need to start looking at your shit and owning it in order to fix it and work with it. That's shadow work. <laughs> Not popular. Yeah, well, I can imagine it would be, be confronting for the people going through it. That would, would, do you find it difficult to facilitate that type of work? When You have to do it very skillfully. It takes, and you have to be seriously non-judgmental. And yeah, it's a huge skill set. In, in it's it's a lot of it's emotional management of yourself as well because if someone 
confesses something that that's shadow and it's something you haven't looked at in yourself as a facilitator, you'll judge them. Mm-hmm. You just can't help yourself. You might not judge it out loud. You'll judge them internally and then they'll feel it and then they'll shut down and that'll be the end of the learning. So it's quite challenging uh, to facilitate it and you have to do it. Yeah. I did a whole bunch of processes to get, if you, again, if you're listening to this and you happen to be a frontline leader, what you might be, you might feel very indignant. Yeah. Those senior leaders don't own their shit. Well, how about you? Do you own your shit? Cause it's always the same. Everybody's pointing the finger at everyone else. It's classic in organizations. We had a team once with 40 of them and their trust was broken in the team. Right. And I said, so what needs to change? Oh, they, them, we, you know, like it's we, they, them. They. I said, well, hey, let's do an exercise. Let's, let's each of you just say one thing that you've done to break trust around the space. Oh my God. I was trying to, people were threatening me legally. I was like, well, how are you going to improve if you can't, like you've got 40 people in the room behaving in ways that are breaking trust. And look, it turns out it's no one, no one. Are you guys telling me that no one particular person's to blame? No one is doing anything wrong. So let's put up a we will change bullshit, right? I said, what do you mean we will change? You guys are behaving in ways as individuals that are breaking trust. Can you own that? That's the process of restoring trust. So eventually, you know, we got over the line. But it's this basic 101 of, it's the number one killer in long-term relationships as well. It destroys marriages. It destroys parental child relationships. Sometimes I'll say to parents who've got, in inverted commas, grumpy teenagers, they'll say, you know why you've got a grumpy teenager? It's because you're parenting, your parenting's up to shit. What? Yes, teenagers are not by default grumpy. They're not grumpy with their friends. They're grumpy because you don't listen to them. They're grumpy because you don't own your shit in front of them. They're grumpy because maybe they don't have a voice. They're grumpy because maybe they're not understood properly. Have you ever considered that it might be your parenting? Most people, nah. I say, well, there's your shadow. You're doing things that you're just in complete denial around. Or you say to your partner, you know, why do you do that? And the partner says, I don't do that. What do you mean you don't do that? I've just done it. No, I didn't. You know, I didn't mean it. I didn't. It's like, are you serious? Own your shit, man. So that's. (laughs) (laughs) And, And that's a challenge. And I think it's a challenge for a lot of leaders, both at a personal level and a professional level to really turn that lens back on themselves and really take a deep look because it's hard and sometimes it's just easier not to. Yeah. Oh, it's much easier not to. It never leads to a good outcome long-term. No. It leads to disconnection, distrust, broken relationships. And that's what most homes have got this. My other one I talk about just marriage. I'll often say to clients, if you're not able to own your shit, if you're not able to self-reflect and, you know, own the, the parts of your behavior that are not ideal, admit them, acknowledge them, make repair with them, what will happen is, is you, in your marriage, you'll have these moments with, with your spouse where you get into an argument and basically both of you are saying to each other, hey, you need to change. And the other way, hey, not me, you need to change. That's a classic pattern of married, marital arguments. You need to do that. And so what, at some point you're going to register, you're going to go, you know what? I can't get through to my partner. I still love them. This is just all too hard. Let's just leave this. So you got to go into this truce, this kind of peace. But what happens in those moments is that you lose the opportunity to deepen your understanding of each other, deepen the the, the vulnerability and connection because you cannot own your shit and look in your partner. 
So then what happens is the relationship gets this subtle, uh, like it, it kind of starts paling into this kind of comfortable, nummy feeling. And within five years, your relationship is comfortably numb. That's what happens. You show me a marriage that's into its 10th year where there's aliveness, love is growing, the connection, there's edgy places of vulnerability still, learning about more about yourself and each other with each other. Those are one in 10 million. The vast majority of long-term relationships go into a kind of old pair of shoes, comfortable numbness. That's because those people are not good at owning their stuff with each other and looking more deeply. And that's the price tag you have for that kind of set of behaviors. You lose the whole growth journey with each other and your relationships turn into these kind of old pair of shoes things. And that's a shame, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, every client I nearly, I tell that you can see the recognition flickering in your eyes when I talk about this. Yeah. It's like, shit, that's my marriage. You know, mm. it kind of, it's nice, but it's not exciting anymore. Or it's just freaking endless arguments and pain. Yeah. How many of us have marriages and long-term relationships where it's deeply alive, sensitive, connected, growing, learning, discovering more about ourselves with each other. You know, the love deepens, opens edgy moments where your heart feels so open. It's going to kill you. Those moments. Nah, you won't have much of that going on. Mm. You, you mentioned earlier about um, often the, the culture and the, and the senior leaders and it sort of leads me to to something you've written about why we're cynical about values because just recently I had a I've come across a real disconnect between a customer and a supplier that we're doing some work with and it's uh, I'm interested to explore that that sort of idea about being cynical about your values so most of us don't I'm gonna try and give you some short answers given our time most of us don't understand what values are for and why they why we have values in the first place most of us live our values to the degree to which they get us, they earn us approval and job safety. If we can get away with violating a value and still have, still get approval as in being admired or liked and, and still have job security, we'll go for it, especially if it enhances those. So to lie, for example, to impress someone, if we can get away with a lie to impress someone, often we will because then we get more approval and we feel better about ourselves. What most people don't understand is that values are actually a training for the mind and what they are is a way to become deeply congruent within yourself. It's been my experience after 17 years of training leaders that 1% of leaders actually, in inverted commas, get what values are about. I was with an executive team of a, of a large organization yesterday, and at the end of the day, pretty much, that's what they were saying, like, wow, we had no idea what values. For us, values were like to get a good citizen award or there were a branding experience. In the, you know, let's brand the values. Here are our values, everybody. And 99% of people that I know that work in organizations will tell you there's the company published values and then there's the actual behaviors in the company and they're really not quite the same. It's not terrible. It's just not, you know, it's not perfect. It's not inspirational. It's not genuine. And that's because the leaders have no idea of how to live values at, at an edgy way. So value, that's why we're so cynical about values. To live a value, to, to live like, a, so let's say, let's be honest. I'm going to be honest. To live a value meaningfully is to put to the test your job, like your job security, and to put to the test approval and, uh, and ad admiration needs. In other words, it's to tell the truth, even if it's uncomfortable, to tell the truth, even if it's embarrassing, to tell the truth, even if it's telling your boss 
truthfully that you're not appreciating the way they lead and knowing that that may possibly lead to losing your job. It's putting the truth above the usual fear-based concerns we have. That's rare, very rare. And for most of us, we tell ourselves these terrifying stories in our own mind that if, if I had to be honest, everything would be lost. And so we stay in this fear-based, nummy, kind of not very inspiring place. And that's the vast majority of us. And so to live a value meaningfully is a huge psychological test. And if you ask the average person, would you like a boss that really lives, let's say, two key values like respect and honesty? Like you know they're always going to be respectful and honest. And if they're not, you know you can tell them and they'll course correct and they'll come back to it because they, you know how deeply committed they are, like for real, to honesty and respect. Like who wouldn't want a boss like that versus a boss that's, you know, Oh, well, I'll be respectful if it's convenient. I'll tell the truth if it's convenient. And so we all want that boss, but how many of us are prepared to be that boss? Very few, very, very few. It's really demanding work. And that's why we're so cynical about values. We're right to be cynical about values because it's rare that you see people. I mean, that's what defines people like Gandhi or people like Mandela. They're not, they're not these super special people there's tons of people out there who live values like them. It's just that what defined their goodness, defined their heroic quality of their leadership. Hey, you know what? They had a clear set of values and they lived them. And they were willing to have sacrifice around those values. They were willing to be punished to still live those values. And they did. That's what made their stories heroic. But they bring out the best in us as human beings. They remind us of the best in ourselves. So how do you suggest organizations look to really embed their values? Because it's one of the biggest things we come across is that the values are on the wall and they're not actually lived and breathed and there's no sense of connection between the leaders at all the different levels with the values. Senior leaders, I would say, um, sorry, if you're a mid, mid, mid leader or frontline leader, it's like you've almost got to not ignore it. I know it's painful, but you've got to ignore it. You've got to set your own values for your own team. And make those meaning. And research shows that's way more powerful than trying to follow something on a wall. So my favorite question to, to team leaders is, what are the two most important behaviors in your team? Do you know? Do your team know? Is there agreement? At the very minimum, to create a sort of values culture as a, as a team leader, you've got to know what the two most important behaviors are. The, the ones that you would, you, would, you would appreciate, reward, celebrate people behaving under, under fire, and the ones that you would literally fire people over. Like what are those one or two or three behavior standards in your team? Like that's what this team's about. That's the first rule. The second rule, unfortunately, you know, for senior leaders is the bottom line is that the senior leaders are not walking the talk. You're basically stuffed. And so if you're, you know, if you're a senior leader, then that's your work, right? Is to define those values. There's a huge amount of work behind this, Julian. This is, you know, we started the journey with an executive team. This is months of work um, to get this right because you've got to deal with a lot of fear a lot of greed, a lot of BS around it. And that's all got to come clean. It's got to come out. It's got to be cleaned up to get the values right. So, I mean, I think just a note to, to, to everyone listening to this, if you feel a lot of despair and disconnection around the values in your organization, you're not alone. The vast majority of people, I think 7%, I, can't, I don't know if this, I can't remember, I don't know if I'm remembering this accurately, but only 7% of people find their own boss inspiring. It's rare, man. Rare, 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 rare. And I can tell you this much, an inspiring boss will have a set of clear values that they live. I'd, I'd bet my life on it. it. makes people inspiring. 
Yeah, it's a big, it's a big question. And there's just two more, two more uh, questions I've got for you if you've got time, Michael. First one is this idea of uh, nourish others with love <laughs> and, and, and how that works in a, in, in a practical sense in a workplace. Yeah. So we've changed that term. In a book, it's called Nourish Others with Love. We, we, it put off some people and we were, a bit, we were a bit gung-ho when we did that term. <laughs> we, now, we now call it engage the heart. That's the term we use. Um, just simply, the, the simplest example I give senior leaders is um, why do home teams, why do teams perform better on their home ground? And it's kind of obvious, right? One, I mean, sometimes it's familiarity with the ground helps them feel more comfortable. But as a general rule, it's because they cheered on, they supported. And when they score the goal, wow, there's huge support. Unfortunately for many people, their, their daily work experience is not feeling like they're on the home ground. They feel like that they're at the away game, right? Every time they make a mistake, they get criticized and laughed at, booed. A, a leader's job is to help people feel, their team members, to feel like they're coming to the home ground each day. And so when they do something good, the leader cheers literally like, like that's freaking awesome, mate. Great job, mate. Well done, man. I see you. I appreciate your work you do. Awesome. It's just that simple act of expressing appreciation and gratitude to your team members daily. Like there can be such a cynical attitude around us. It's funny, you know, the, the sort of statement as a leader say, oh, but people are paid to do their jobs. Why do I have to appreciate and recognize them? They're paid to do their jobs. If you took that logic, you'd be sitting in your favorite footy game and your team scores the goal and no one would cheer. And then you would say, mate, they get paid big bucks to do this job. They don't need cheering. <laughs> You'd be like, that doesn't make sense, right? You would do that. You do that because you you're saying, hey, I'm here to support you to succeed. I want, you. and when you succeed, I'm freaking cheering you on. That's at the essence of what nourish others with love or engage the heart means. The other important aspect of it, and I'll ask you this, Julian: Have you ever had a boss or seen a leader that you would have regarded as a fantastic boss who did not love the people they were leading? Yeah, no. No, every every fantastic boss that I can recall had a genuine connection with their people. Yeah, and that if you look at Jim, I love Jim Cousins and Barry Posner's quote on this. They literally are the most data centric, research based leadership authors in the world. Everything is research, right? Everything's got data behind it. And in the, in the last page of their book, The Leadership Challenge, they say, you know what? At the end of the day. And yes, there's these techniques. Yes, there's these practices. Yes, there's your integrity. But you know what? At the end of the day, leadership above all else is about love. It's about, it's about I got your back to your people. It's about care. It's about that expression of gratitude and appreciation. And you, I, I, I think to me, for me personally, when I see it at that sort of that frontline worker level um, in organizations where you get the salt of the earth kind of leaders, and you just know they care about their people and their team. Uh, like it's, I find that incredibly inspiring. I find that more inspiring than a CEO. You know, there's, it's just that they, you can just see that they're not necessarily trained. They don't have all the fancy education leadership training, but you just know they give a shit about their people and that they, and, and they show it, they show it in little acts of care and they show it in little acts of, you know, mate, you're doing a great job, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's all that's required. People need that. Mm, they certainly do. 
Yeah. 79% of people leave their, when they leave their jobs, they, they quote as one of their top five reasons for leaving the job as not enough appreciation from their boss. Again, it's another damning statistic about the quality of leaders out there, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And it's just, if you're listening to this, don't be criticizing others. Be that boss. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Own your shit and be the boss is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And so finishing up, there's uh, this idea that uh, you are worth it. Yeah. You've written about. Yeah. Most of us deeply don't believe we're valuable. We keep, we're always trying to prove it. And I think, uh, I think one of my most important messages that I've learned, I mean, I'm, I'm basically came from a hard, tough achieving background, you know, bust your ass, win, beat everyone else, guilt, judgment based childhood. That's my childhood and nothing serious, but just normal. And I, I think it takes a lot to, the you are worth it statement is saying that you are worth giving yourself some time to be well. You are worth exercising. You are worth being a good leader. You are worth a little bit of mindfulness practice. In other words, it's like don't neglect yourself because when you neglect yourself, you become unwell. And when you're unwell, that unknowness spills onto others. You are worth it. It's not a statement of, oh, my God, I'm a rock star and it's arrogant. It's about saying that if I'm not looking after myself, it makes it very difficult, impossible to look after others. So you are, you're worth investing in yourself. It's worth caring for yourself. It's worth, because you are worth it. it intrinsically, um, I think it's easy to forget that how amazing we are. Every human being is amazing. Every human being is worth dignity and respect and care. Every single one. That includes you, includes me. I think it's the remembering of that and then making choices from that sense of I'm worth it and so are others worth it with respecting, honoring is a really important ethos of mindful leadership. Well, if uh, people want to find out more about you and about the work that you do, uh, Michael, where should they go? What should they look for? Mindful leader, double L, mindfulleader.net. And then the other one, awakenedmind.com. Those are the, my two main websites. Um, you can download an executive summary of the Mindful Leader for free on mindfulleader.net. It's a, it's, we put a lot of effort into the exec summary as well. It's a beautifully published document. You can have that for free. Uh, Awakened Mind can give you access. It'll give you all the details. I say awakened as in past tense, awakenedmind.com. It gives you a little bit of detail around what the mindfulness app's all about and what you can do with that too. And we'll be running public trainings at some point, Julian, on one-day mindfulness trainings, even certification programs for people like even yourself if you wanted to do the training where you take mindfulness to, to your clients. Um, we've got that as well in onawakenmind.com. And Is that something you're doing now? Uh, we, 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 we were about to offer the first training in June. And then um, I've been... Uh, we've got a, a long story, but we've got a very a global client who is, looks like they're going to take my next six months of my life um, oh, wow. in Europe with, wow. their, with their senior leadership group. Um, so that kind of put a halt to that plan. But we hope to offer it in September. 
Okay. Um, so that's a one day mindfulness training with me doing the training where you can just come as a general person and, and just, you can, you'll find that on awakenmind.com where you can come and sort of immerse in the experience of mindful training and what mindfulness. And then the day two of that program, uh, which, which is, you might want to continue would be to teach you to teach that program. So you, you know, with workbooks and facilitator guides and slide decks and videos and the whole nine yards where you can run a training program on mindfulness and you don't even have to really be a mindfulness expert. We've trained it. We've run, run, the course is designed in a way where, you know, just play this video and then take discussion. And so you don't have to be as a general rule to really teach mindfulness. Well, you have to have a minimum of 10 years of practice to really oh. to know your shit around mindfulness. You have to have, and that's the, that's the general rule I have in my business. So if someone wants to join my business as a consultant within my business, that's rule number one. Have you got 10 years of mindfulness practice? And if not, come back to me when you've got 10 years because it's significant, the whole ethos of it. Of it. But to, do, to run an introduction day on mindfulness, and, and it also segues people into the app. So it's like yeah. he has a beautiful introduction and then, and then they've got a resource to continue on. And in, and in the app, there's progressive skill sets. So we felt comfortable designing that certification program for really anyone who wants to train. I mean, it's a beautiful, it's just a beautiful thing because you, you're benefiting people, your own consultancy benefits if, if for you guys, your own consultancy benefits from it because you can actually offer something amazing and, and generate more business for yourself. It's just good for everyone. So that's um, on awakenmind.com. And then there's the books. So there's the Mindful Leader book itself, which is available in any bookstore. Um, and then uh, it's even available in Officeworks now. If clients send me a picture of my book in Officeworks, the Mindful Leader. I didn't know Officeworks stocked books now. <laughs> exactly. It's a, a really small collection of books, which is, which is nice. It's a vote for the Mindful Leader. And then Extraordinary Leadership in Australia and New Zealand was my first book a long-winded title but um that's a nice short book very short it's only 120 pages i think on on the five research leadership practices of kuzis and posner and then there's a book on on just pure mindfulness but i wouldn't worry about getting the book on mindfulness because that's all in the app the app's got an audio version of that book a pdf version of that book the app's got a huge number of resources it's more than 400 pieces of content wow know. It's took, taken us two and a half to three years, I think, to develop in a million dollars. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's our, um, our work of art and labor of love and, and uh, blood draining, financially draining program. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think that's probably going to be a wrap, Michael. Thank you so much for you know, taking this time to share your thoughts. Julian, thank you. And then the listener, if you've managed this far, you're already mindful. <laughs> Listen, this long, well done. That you've already broken every statistic under the sun nearly. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Michael. We'll speak soon. Yes, thanks, Julian. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. I trust you found it interesting. A couple of things. If you could go online and leave a review of the podcast, that would be great. Really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast. Happy for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you want to shoot me through an email, julian at synergygroup.com.au. See you next time.